Magento Merchant is brought to you by Something Digital, a Magento Enterprise and Shopify Plus partner. Something Digital is an award-winning digital agency that will put your e-commerce site to work. Visit them online today at somethingdigital.com slash podcast. Welcome to Merchant to Merchant. We are live here on Newbury Street at Tracksmith in Boston, Massachusetts. And we have a live panel with us. Can you guys make some noise here tonight? Wow, Li- lively bunch <laughs> uh, here with us. And tonight we are talking with uh, four brands who are based right here in New England who are doing things in such an interesting way to stoke passion uh, amongst their customers. And I think that it, you know, as the head goes, so does the body. I think that when you have leadership like the people that are on this panel here tonight that are so passionate about the things that they have created or the areas of business that they lead, uh, I don't see how you could possibly not have passionate customers. So I'd love to introduce them you. Let's start with you, Aman. Tell uh, the people who you are and what you do. Great. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I think this is such a fun group and a group of people that we'll, we'll continue to get to know, but have enjoyed getting to know and kind of building the New England scene for uh, making really special brands right here at home. So um, our brand is called Ministry of Supply. Uh, I started with a couple of partners uh, uh, several years ago now in 2012. Um, we were born at the intersection of form and function, like uh, like many brands are, this idea of taking everything we love from uh, engineering and applying it, in our case, to fashion. Um, so think taking your least favorite dress clothes and giving them a bit of a facelift with your favorite performance technology. So think dress clothes that are super soft and stretchy, machine washable, no iron, and 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 maybe uh, at best clothes you actually look forward to putting on every day. So uh, we're based right here in Boston. Our office is about 30 feet that way. Our Boston store is about 30 feet that way. Um, and we're super excited to be here and grateful to be am- amongst this bunch. Awesome. Caroline. Hi, I'm Caroline. Uh, my brand is called Smiling Button. We are a children's lifestyle apparel brand. Um, we dress children ages newborn to 10 years. And what we do is very classic silhouettes that would traditionally be dry clean only, but in really fun, playful prints that are all 100% cotton, washable, easy, fun playwear. Everything is made right here in Massachusetts. Our office is based in Back Bay um, in the Hancock Tower around the corner. And we do mostly wholesale. We're about 95% Wholesale. Great. Laura? Hi, uh, my name is Laura Natto. I work at Seabags, and Seabags is a sustainability brand that was founded about 20 years ago. Um, recycling sails that have had a full and useful life on the water that were bound for the landfill, and instead we make them into totes and accessories. Um, we make all of our product in the USA. In fact, we're based in Portland, Maine, and make our products on the last commercial wharf in Portland that's open to the public. So a place that we're really proud to be based. Matt? This is your place, by the way. It is. Thank yeah. you for having us. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Matt Taylor. I'm the founder and CEO of Tracksmith, um, which is a now five-year-old um, running apparel brand. We do men's and women's apparel and accessories, um, sort of deeply rooted in the culture of the sport, which is why you see the space up here, which we use as um, community space. <clears throat> There's actually a run that is just finishing downstairs. We give the space normally to other groups. We host our own runs from here. Um, and I have them on beat a little bit because our office is literally right upstairs and our store <laughs> is right downstairs. So, um, so anyway, welcome and thanks for coming. Uh, and, and thank you all for uh, participating in the panel here tonight. You're all operators, right? And you're creators in your own right. Uh, I thought tonight as we talk about, specifically the title is uh, that we're creating like passion brands creating experiences that people fall in love with. And 
just doing a little bit of due diligence into each one of you, uh, each one of your brands have very passionate customer response online. Uh, it doesn't take much searching at all to find people who say very nice things about you. I, I thought maybe we could start with something that's pretty high level, which is what do you think it is that is the difference in your space? So each one of you do uh, are in a category that has competition, right? There are large players in the space who are, uh, who are also trying to win the same customers. What do you think it is about your brand in particular that is connecting with a customer and making them so passionate? Can we start with you, Caroline? Sure, happy to. Um, so what we do, as I had mentioned a little bit before, is we span the gap between athleisure for kids, so athletic wear, and that dry clean only smocked apparel. Um, and we have that smocked silhouette, but in a really just like playful, fun print that sort of jumps out of the closet, whether it's twirling elephants or little hearts or a zoo print. It's something that makes kids smile. And so I think that the prints really resonate with the child. And I think that the silhouettes resonate with the parents or the grandparent who's buying it, who feels like it's something that they wore when they were a child. Um, and it has pockets and it's playful. And, you know, it goes from the playground to the country club and sort of everything in between. It's meant to be a dress for all the time. And I think parents appreciate something that can be worn all the time and then thrown in the wash and worn again and again and again and passed down to the next child in the family. So I, I, I'll add on, I think uh, ha having a son who wears smiling button clothes, I can speak to it from a different angle, um, but only to reiterate everything that Caroline just said. But I think what's true about all the brands up here, and I'd certainly say is true with smiling button, is this idea that the, the incumbent in the category is not necessarily the competitor. Uh, and what I mean by that is to say that uh, when we're shopping for my son Asher to get something that he can wear to a dressed-up occasion, most of the options are fairly stuffy. And we'd sooner just put him in in kind of a, a Hannah Anderson like sweatsuit than than deal with you know this super stuffy environment that is the incumbent for what Caroline is doing. And I think for all the brands up here, the idea of the incumbent being different from the competitor is huge. And that now all of a sudden we're excited about going to Smiling Buttons website and and, and shopping. And Asher looks forward to putting on his football pants rather than kind of dreading putting on his super stuffy stiff, dry clean only, you know, pants. So I think, I think I, I'm sure we all share this passion and excitement for doing something dramatically different, not just slightly better. Um, I, I like that. I, I recently was, uh, I had accidental comms training from uh, somebody from Glossier who said, it's not competition, it's peers. They're your peers. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that, that's, a, that's a much better way to put it. I, I need to learn that for myself. Um, tell us, since, since you're already on the subject, uh, speaking of Ministry of Supply, how, how are you... You know, taking how are you making people excited to wear, you know, work clothes? Yeah, I mean, I think I think I would probably just continue the, the stream of consciousness there to say I think it's by doing something dramatically different. We've been doing the exact same thing for decades upon decades and saying something's got to give, right? Something's got to change. Um, you know, we're wearing generally the same dress clothes that our grandparents wore with slightly different silhouettes with with roughly the same fabrics. Um, and so in our case, it's something, how, how can we take our backgrounds as engineers and apply that to fashion and do something that doesn't look or feel anything like what people are used to and that, that might excite people more than just, again, you know, uh, um, as someone referred to, kind of blah, blah on steroids, rather something that's truly a different category and might, might, might get someone's attention. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the, the brand, you said you, you have a different sort of textile approach, a different sort of... <laughs> that's right. So it's all performance material. So it may not look like it. We use kind of matte finishes, super soft, stretchy, um, you know, more traditional uh, aesthetically, but, but will feel very different. So if you kind of walk in, touch and stretch anything, it'll feel quite dramatically different than what you might be used to. Hmm. Laura, 
the world needs another bag company. Um, <laughs> you notice? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you, you've been around for quite a long time. Seabags is how old now? 20 years old. 20 years yeah. old. And uh, there's the differentiator being that you're using reclaimed materials. Right, right. So, you know, the... The business was founded on sustainability, as I said, and but it, more than just being founded on sustainability, we were founded on three tenets that kind of guide everything that we do within the company. Uh, we're green in product and practice. We make all of our product in the USA, and we give back to our community generously. And those are three things that are, um, they resonate with everybody. I don't know that there's anybody in this room that wouldn't raise their hand and say that that's important to me at some level. So when you talk about creating passion and why people come back to shop from Seabags or can justify, well, $150 on a tote, do, do I need it? But when they find out that, you know, the tote's washable, um, you're probably going to have it for 20 years if you, you know, treat it nicely. And... Um, and it's, it's serving a purpose that goes beyond uh, just carrying a vanity item or something that's just a new style component in your closet. It really is a usable, durable product that has a purpose, and um, people are proud to carry. So. And, and I'm sure the consumer that's looking to shop their ideals, right, and yeah. shop their values is, is oh, yeah. a passionate one. Oh, yeah. And I think that, you know, 20 years ago, I don't think that this was um, as trendy a thing to be shopping your ideals. I think that people weren't as aware of it. So it was a bit more uh, challenging probably to start the business back then. But you know, since we're at this stage now where people are very aware of environmentalism and the need to be more conscious in, in how we consume and making sure we're buying something that's gonna last you more than a year, um, that, that this is, they're all very relevant points and because when we started, those were the three tenets of the business. We have been authentic in our execution of them ever since. Those, that authenticity really lends to people's uh, trust in the brand and the customer loyalty we're able to generate. Brands that build communities, like real people connecting to each other, uh, tend to have a central purpose to bring people together around. We hear a running group that's kind of communing downstairs right now. Uh, Tracksmith seems to be able to build that community uh, physically here in Boston. How else are you doing that in, you know, outside of this storefront? Yeah. <clears throat> so we um, think we have some sort of a unique advantage in the sense that um, we're in a category where people are participating in the activity for which we make the clothing, right? And so outside of a purchase decision of needing to buy another pair of pants or glasses or something, people are actually doing this activity. They're traveling literally now all over the world. It's not uncommon now to travel to Berlin or London or Tokyo to run a marathon or <clears throat> even within the U.S. to go way outside um, your home state or home region, which 15, 20 years ago was very rare. Um, and so this community kind of already exists. Um, and so, um, and what happened over that period of time is the incumbent sort of went to the two ends of the spectrum. You either were um, at the sort of uber elite professional side of the sport trying to win Olympic medals, or you were sort of um, putting out a message that was a little more general health and wellness, get off the couch and try to exercise a couple times a week. And in the middle was this very passionate and committed and dedicated consumer who sort of wasn't being addressed by the two ends of that spectrum. And so um, <clears throat> we've just sort of found a way to, to fill that void. Um, we do that here in Boston, obviously, with, you know, we're here, it's a little bit easier. Outside of Boston, 
we do pop-ups at. Um, this year we'll do all six major marathons. So there are six marathons around the world, um, Tokyo, Berlin, London, New York, Chicago, and Boston. So we'll have a physical presence at all of those. Um, in some of those markets like New York, um, in London, we actually start activating 100 days out from the race because that's when people really start their training in earnest. So here right now in Boston every Sunday, because we're within 100 days to Boston, um, we have long runs every Sunday. We have coffee um, and snacks before the run. We have pacers at every pace group that you would need. Um, we have water stops out on the course. Um, we make pancakes for everybody afterwards. And you know we'll get 150 to 200 people on Sunday morning here go out for an hour and a half, two-hour run, and come back. So we'll be doing that in New York and London and some other markets. And um, So there is a little bit of a built-in aspect to, to mm. what already exists, so we've just found a way to participate in that. We talked about you know, how passionate your customers are. What are the challenges that you're sort of <coughs> facing in trying to connect with more customers right now? Uh, I assume that you, you all haven't reached total saturation in the market, so... Uh, I'm sure every day you're trying to fight to find that next buyer, right? The, your, your next customer. Uh, how, how are you reaching them? What are you trying to do to get to them? You, you're in wholesale, sure. right? I'm, I'm primarily in wholesale. Um, right now, we have showrooms in Atlanta and Dallas where we reach most of our wholesale customers. Um, and we work with a lot of great boutiques. We work with over 100 boutiques in the U.S. Um, and the Caribbean. And then um, we work with a lot of resorts like the Four Seasons Group, um, department stores like Saks and Neiman's and Bergdorf's. Um, and so that's really exciting. We're always looking for more big customers. But now in 2019, I feel like we really have gotten to a point where I'm really proud of the customer base that we're with on the wholesale side. And now we're looking to pivot a little bit more to direct to consumer because it's totally untapped for us and a huge opportunity. So pretty much we're our our goal is to be doing a lot more for direct-to-consumer, and um, we'll probably be reaching them via Instagram and a lot of mommy bloggers. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested to know, uh, and maybe it's not as complicated as I would think it to be, but you're not selling to the person who actually winds up wearing the apparel, right? which I think is a little different. Uh, so how do you appeal to a mom you know, or a dad who's purchasing on behalf of the kid and that seems like it's a, its own challenge, especially when you're once removed from not having the direct relationship with the customer. It definitely is. Um, when we started, when I started this company, I started with a pop-up store on Nantucket, and everything was eye level for kids. And it was really about seeing what those kids pull out. We had hopscotch in the store. It was like just a playful, fun environment where it was almost a focus group every day of what silhouettes are these actual three-year-olds pulling and you know wanting to wear, um, or what you know what fun fabrics. And so I feel like we got a really good grasp of what our customer likes, and then we continue to do a lot of events. So even though we're not selling directly to the customer, we're selling into these stores, you know, in our top stores, we'll go do events, bring out their customer base, really get to talk to them, um, create a relationship with them. They may have, you know, a whole closet full of smiling button. And we say, you know, what's your favorite dress? Why is it your favorite dress? And we really aim to get a focus group of what people love about smiling button and which pieces they love so that we can create more of that. Mm. Is Amon, I'm thinking about your category, and when I think about the sort of performance wear, you know, dress shirt category, uh, there used to be one or two players. Now, like mattresses, it feels like there's 175 players. Uh, you have the benefit of having the name. 
what else are you, what, besides the name and the brand recognition, how else are you trying to acquire a customer and, and how do you sort of now distinguish yourself against all the copycats? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, I think uh, absent of what I, Matt described earlier in this kind of brilliant community they've created here at Tracksmith where there's just this kind of virality inherent in everybody kind of feeling this energy around the, the sport of running, we don't have that. We, we, you know, our customers united in two ways. They generally go to work. And they buy our stuff. <laughs> That's it, right? Like we don't, they don't all hang out together and talk about like we go to work, you go to work, I go to work. <laughs> it's a little bit tough to, to, to get them right. So we have to, we have to stand out. You know, word of mouth certainly helps, but much more in a a one on one basis. We have to then you know fight in a little bit different way to, to stand out from those hundred and seventy five you know mattress in a box brands. And uh, and so for us, we we found out we had someone ask the same question. I see ten you know companies on Instagram saying they're making the most comfortable pants and let's add travel in there. Most comfortable travel pants on the planet. How do you stand out? And, uh, and the only answer still comes back to humans, right? Like it, even if it's not the super tight kind of viral word of mouth community that I think Tracksmith has done a brilliant job of creating, we can still use humans. They just aren't in the same place at the same time and often not speaking to each other, but speaking into the cloud and the cloud kind of speaks back as it, as it does through reviews, through press, through you know, uh, peer-to-peer connections and comments on, on posts, stuff like that, that. The only thing that might separate us from those other nine who are presumably just shipped you know, direct from a factory somewhere else, um, and, and there is no brand behind it other than just a, a good Instagram ad, is that we have a ton of humans who can tell you face-to-face through a YouTube review through a press quote, through a press article, through just a, a review on the website or, or on Google, that it genuinely was everything we said it was. And I think that that uh, has become the only way that we can really separate a really low barrier to enter, entry digital world from a still genuine and authentic physical world is that people here in the room today hopefully have left a review somewhere that they really loved or didn't like and that that authenticity can come through and the power of the customer gets even louder, not quieter when that barrier to entry goes down. Hmm. I think you mentioned um, mattresses, and obviously there's been a little bit written about Casper recently in their just S1 filing. Just a bit. Um, we could use one more hot tub, though. We could. No, I, I don't have a hot tub. Um, I'll sleep on anything, so I don't, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't concern me. Um, but I think it is interesting because I think there will be a shift away from digital spend to some extent because I think, to Amon's point, the barrier to entry there has become so low for brands um, and it's just so cluttered and so noisy and it's really hard to cut through that. And so um, that's why we feel good about having sort of this community aspect to the brand, being able to activate in person in a way that feels really authentic to us and to the sport and doesn't feel super forced. Um, so I think it'll just be interesting. You, you, you guys have done really well with some digital advertising um, to just sort of think how that's going to evolve over the next 18 to 24 months because it certainly will. Yeah. On the Tracksmith side, are you... Uh, you, you talked about the pop-up strategy, meeting people in real life seems to be one that, way that you're overcoming the, uh, you know, how are we going to get in front of more people yeah. problem. Have you felt any pressure to sort of, you know, outspend the peer, you know, customer acquisition costs and like kind of chase it up the ladder and you know, <coughs> go acquire the customer? Um, what, um, what is that like in the digital space today? Yeah, I mean, there's, um, I wouldn't say pressure. Um, I think that we have had success in some of the sort of performance marketing. We, we have done some um, Facebook, Instagram, a little bit of Google. We've also had good success with print catalogs um, because we are a very visual and editorial-focused brand in our storytelling. That medium works really well for us. Um, but we are constantly thinking about what are the ways that are not 
Facebook and Instagram that we can continue to, f to get in front of customers. I, I just want to key in on something you said, which is storytelling, which I think is how the media landscape has changed for all of us over the last you know, five to 10 years. And content marketing is certainly something that everybody's familiar with. But um, even in the print space, you know, the move away from editorial towards advertorial and the, the fact that at any point somebody can be consuming content about your brand and not know if it's coming from you or if it's actually paid. And um, that, I think that's really important to, to think about because there's a certain level of authenticity that mm. customers need to feel that this is, this is real, this is you're, you're feeding me and telling me things about your brand that um, are meaningful and I'm not just being sold. Um, and especially with a younger generation, it's really important. I know we've had a great deal of success with video uh, content explaining the features and benefits of our bags, telling our brand story, because not everybody realizes that 100% of our bags are made from recycled sales. And people will come into the store and see all these beautiful designs printed on the, and they're like, really? There was a sale that had like these fish printed on it? It's like, no, we, we did it. Like we, <laughs> we, you know, we, we will do that. But the, the thing is, is the sale itself is still a recycled sale. Really telling that story is hard to do online all the time. And so you have to figure out a way to take that retail experience, which not everybody up here has retail um, as a presence. And we do. We have 25 retail stores. But we started with two. And as we built and understood that we had to take that retail experience and build it out in such a way that people could get that same experience online in some capacity that, that they might even feel like they could hear the seagulls and that they could smell the salt water. Like That's what's really important. Five or six years ago, you could have accused me of saying, like, as a consultant in the e-commerce space, I would have told someone that any, any brand founder who's saying, but we have to have our story as a top-level navigation link because it's the most important thing, I would have told them, like, you're a little, you know, you're the only one who cares. Mm -hmm. um, that's not true anymore. Mm -mm. Uh, I, I really believe that what you're saying is correct, is that I think people need, like, they're in search of the deeper connection and what it is. And I th so I guess my question would be to you, and uh, I'll, I'll, this is, I'll airball this one. You guys pick it up. Is there a best practice playbook? Like, is there a true, like, best practice in this industry that you just kind of follow A, B, C, D, and you're, you can find some level of success right now? It's going to be out of date by the time it's printed. <laughs> you know? I mean, with, the, with the pace of technology right. and media, like it, just, it would be impossible to keep up with. But there are certain things, I think, in advertising and marketing that have held true over decades. Mm -hmm. And you can go back to your Ogilvy and Mather books and you know, understand that the consumerism is consumerism tried and true. But in terms of what's going to work best in terms of a video ad, I think some of that stuff changes depending on the whim of what the consumer market is at the moment. I, I think the fundamentals have existed for a long time. It's the tactics that are changing constantly. Mm -hmm. and. I think what happens a lot, especially in the sort of media landscape we live in, is that you have a brand that sort of captures everyone's imagination and everyone writes about them. And then every uh, you know, aspiring entrepreneur, and I fell into this trap when I was starting Traxxas and said, oh, Bonobos did that, so we have to go do that. You know? And, and yeah. I very quickly realized, OK, that's actually not. There's a lot of nuance to what we're doing that's different to what they're doing. And so I think, I think the, the fundamentals of brand building and marketing and stuff have absolutely stayed.
pretty consistent, but I think that the tactics, and so I don't think there's a playbook because I think every brand True. has to figure out what's unique and different and what their angle is and what their opportunity is. I think the, the, that there being a playbook would almost be terrifying because then all of a sudden everyone can just do it and it becomes yeah. ubiquitous and the cost then goes up. But I would just echo, I think both of those points are spot on. What we've always think about is say, let's put all of our effort, resource, and any ounce of creativity we have into what actually makes us different, which is to, to a large degree the product itself, but also acknowledging brand and, and its value and illuminating that product. That that's the only you know, tried and true you know, differentiator for a brand. I think it goes absolutely for all three of your brands is that none of us are doing anything wildly innovative on the sell side, right? We're not sitting here really architecting this channel strategy to say it's, you know, that you're wholesale you know, first, that, that you know, we're direct first was probably a product of a couple of decisions that we made early on to either, you know, that we saw traction in somewhere that's how our customers preferred to shop. We don't take massive pride in our channel strategy, right? Mm -hmm. um, we take massive pride in our product, and I suspect you would all agree that what we care most about is at the end of the day, if in two years I'm advertising on TikTok or I'm trying to sell, you know, <laughs> TikTok, Snapchat, and that I'm hawking shirts one by one to Matt's Run Club. Um, it doesn't matter that much because the reality is, as long as I'm super proud of the, of the product that comes out of it, and, yeah. and and of course growth is important to all of us. I think, right? We don't we don't want to just be you know, lawn mowing businesses on the side, right? We, we think we have something really special. We have something really important to offer the world, but how that gets put out there is a lot less important, I think, to all of us than the playbook on, on you know, pay-per-click and, and different styles of advertising that come out there. Those just happen to be a product of what we need to do today, but we'd all be happy, I think, to evolve from that and, and focus continuously on the product itself. Hmm. I'll, I'll totally echo that. I mean, I think that's so true. And the most important thing is, you know, there's not a playbook, but the most important thing is to just to stay on brand and stay true to the core of the brand. And, you know, I think opportunities pop up all the time and you look to see, you know, what other brands are doing or, you know, what should I be doing here? And as long as you're staying true to the brand, that's, you know, the most important thing. I, I'll give a quick example of that because I really like this. Um, that the only rule is just, yeah, just don't, don't compromise it in favor of the marketing strategy. I used to argue with Matt for years. About, you don't even know what I'm about to say. He's terrifying. No, I know. <laughs> we, we argue about a lot of things. This is the best. Yeah. yeah, please. Well, I used to tell him, hey, we got this. We, so, you know, ROAS and this idea of return on ad spend, everyone here might be familiar with the term that you can put up an ad and you can see, you can measure it a little bit on how much people are kind of returning on the ad spend that you put into it. And, uh, and our ad agency a few years ago was like, okay, it's all about user generated content. This is it. And it's people holding an iPhone. You guys have all seen this ad on, yeah. on Facebook. They're holding an iPhone. And most of it's lightly staged, if not entirely staged, right? And you probably know that subconsciously as a consumer, you know that. Um, this, this ad that our ad agency did, shot it, they, they ran it. You know, I hope it's all real. I think it is, but, but it's got a great ROAS. And Matt's like, no, I won't touch it. I'm like, this, it's a great ad. You should give it a shot. And he's like, no, 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 it's, it's totally off brand. It turns out he was right. And, uh, and after like a month of seeing it and just being like kind of disgusted with ourselves, we're like, get this thing off, right? Get it out of here. But I do think we're all tempted to, right? Because the reality is we want to grow these things as much as we, you know, we have pride in our product, but we want to build a big business. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that lapse in judgment comes in. But I, I think it was a good example of just saying, exactly what Caroline just nailed, which is the only rule is don't let that marketing playbook compromise the brand or product because that's where you get in real trouble. Uh, I'm sure no one's ever made any mistakes here. Uh, is there anything that you feel like you've over-invested in or under-invested in? And what would you, you know, if you, if you had to kind of go back and, and correct that, what would that be? I'll start with you, Matt. Mm. <clears throat> I needed some time. I was hoping oh, to have a little uh, more. Uh, more <laughs> yeah, more, yeah, less user-generated content um, <laughs> from zero to minus. Um, 
That is a really good good question. I mean, the hardest thing I think is I wish we had more capital to to overinvest in um, some of the things that we have found that work really well for us. Um, Things around community building, things around content. Um, Film is a good example. So we take, obviously, a lot of pride in our photography. Um, We, the way we generate um, all of our photography is um, pretty unique in our category. And we always want to add on film, but film costs more than photography. So that's one area where I think we've probably, when I look back over the course of five years of the brand, I wish we had 20 amazing films that were also sitting on our website that sort of complemented the photography. So hopefully that's something we can start to do more of. Um, and to me, that feels, you know, that feels like a, something that I, I wish we had and feels right for the brand. And I think we could have done that in a way that would be really powerful and emotional. This podcast is brought to you by Something Digital. Something Digital is a full-service e-commerce agency specializing in strategy, design, digital marketing, and more. Something Digital has award-winning creative design and world-class engineers that can deliver any size project from concept to launch. Something Digital is a Magento Enterprise and Shopify Plus partner. Put your e-commerce site to work with Something Digital. Check them out today at somethingdigital.com slash podcast. For those who aren't familiar, uh, you were telling me on the Future Commerce podcast about how, you know, your strategy in, in, in photography is, you know, to go out and like participate in the whole length of a run and, yep. and, um, and you publish that in a magazine. Some of those things take like a tremendous amount of time to invest. Yep. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that just seems like it's the thing you just have to like lie in wait. Yeah, you're more of a nature photographer than, and like in a way, <laughs> documentary style. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're pretty um, fast runners too. So it's not <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll just to sort of, I, I'd say I won't. I'll, you have to go listen to the podcast because yeah. then people will go listen to the podcast. I like that. But I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll give a little snippet of what what we do or, yeah. or something that's coming up that's interesting. So we're going to um, Arizona in a couple weeks to shoot um, some of our spring product. And just to give an example of how we shoot, um, one of the athletes that we're shooting, who's also an employee here. Um, has qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon, which are in Atlanta at the end of February. Um, so he has to do a 24-mile long run. It's his longest long run of the marathon buildup. And he's going to go do that run. We're going to start with him in the apartment, making his coffee, getting ready for the run. We're going to shoot two and a half hours, three hours of that run, and then all the post-run stuff. You know, And from that, maybe six images, ten images will get used. But... That's just the process that we've created that I think has helped us sort of create and generate these very authentic and raw emotional photos that you can't get if we would have just said, hey, let's go to the Mass Ave Bridge and just run 10 times back and forth and we're going to snap some photos. It's just totally different look and feel. And so that's been important for uh, I, 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 I would echo that in both as a consumer that you can feel that, right? You see yeah. that content. You see when you see a Tracksmith picture, you know it. Instinctively, you could take the logo off of, of the garments and the the, the the catalog, and you'd still know. Yeah, the emotion comes. Yeah, you know that not only this tracks this photo, but you know it was a real photo too, right? We've got a, a whole crew in Singapore for the week, and um, we asked the models only pack in a backpack because we said, and all the clothes they'll be wearing. It's a it's a relatively big backpack, so don't worry too much. But, <laughs> um, but that 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 we have this theme of one week one backpack, and that our, our clothes aren't built for travel, but they're they're quite travel ready. 
And so we said the only way this feels real is if you guys actually put all the stuff that you're going to be wearing the entire time, partly because check-in fees are kind of heavy. Um, <laughs> put it in your backpack. Like get, get that stuff in your backpack, right? And then go prove it, it's real, right? They've got right. blazers rolled up in a ball at the bottom of the backpack and they take it out and wear it. But I do think that stuff comes through and people are much more discerning than we give them credit for. They, they might click on an ad, but the second they really you know, scroll through and figure this stuff out, they realize what's real and what's not, and, they, and, and that people are a lot smarter than they think you know, an Instagram click might give it credit for. Well, you've told us you haven't invested enough in baggage fees. What, what's, <laughs> uh, is there something you've over or under invested in that you felt like were, you know, might have been something that you'd go back and change? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, at the risk of sounding unoriginal, I think it echoes a lot of what we've been talking about here and this idea of being kind of product-focused brands and that mm. our tagline is scientifically better and then kind of blank, right? Whatever it is that we attack, we want to make sure it's 10 times better than what's out there today. And I think we originally had this premise that that had to extend. I think the Bonovas example was spot on to say it had to extend to every ounce of the business. Everybody had to be innovating. And I think early on in the business, we felt like that meant innovating our marketing playbook, innovating our retail playbook, and doing all sorts of crazy stunts and weird things to kind of go get the word out there. And I think if we early on had stayed, just kind of continued to put every hour that we might have put into, you know, creatively thinking about a new, you know, marketing tactic or, or, or retail playbook, if we just continue to put all that back in, you know, how much further would be today? Now, now, fortunately, over the last few years, we've realized that, and all of that creative energy and that kind of scientifically better blank refers specifically to the product and the storytelling around it. Um, that I think we've rebalanced it properly, but but I would only encourage others that that go down that path to kind of. Heed that warning, uh, you know, innovate or excite on the actual value proposition and then nothing beyond it. Can you overinvest in Excel? Is that possible? <laughs> I'm pretty good at Excel. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, you lead the digital channel, Laura, and, you know, uh, people could be accused of overinvesting in, in digital customer acquisition. But yeah. are, are there other, are your platform investments? the kinds that you feel like you're underinvested in or your technology or where do you feel like your investments are, are moving the needle and where are they, you know, well, stalling I, out? I, I think it's a very timely question because we're looking at a lot of uh, investment coming up here in technology and I, having my background, I, you know, I've worked at a lot of companies that were very well funded. And so this point that Matt makes about, well, geez, I wish I had more to spend. Um, and that was certainly the story when I joined Seabags, is I was thinking, geez, I, I just, I wish I had more to work with, more resources. And, um, but the one great thing about not having resources is that you really squeeze everything out of the ones you have. And I know that when I worked at other companies that were much more well-funded, that we would have a tool and we'd use about 70% of the tool. <laughs> And then it's just we would have excuses for why we never got around to using that feature and this feature, and then we're on to the next project. And um, the exercise of saying, well, geez, you can either really make this work and figure out how to jerry-rig it to the point where we were developing platforms like custom for our integrations and using them beyond what they were sold to us for. And that experience in and of itself made us understand you know, the analytics behind it, the brand itself, how people were responding to it, um, and then got us to a better understanding of what our needs really were so that we could then go and shop for things that were better suited or matched to what our technology needs were. So I think that that's the benefit of actually not being very well funded, um, you know, and not just having funny money to play with. Um, you know, I think we had the resources we've needed at every stage of growth we've been at, 
we are at what I would call uh, a point to pivot, and we're looking at our entire IT stack and saying, okay, so where do we go next with this? And looking at all the customer touch points, and you know, do we have a CRM and you know, inventory management and all of these tools in place with the digital experience platforms, everything really well integrated? Uh, is, is it a true omni-channel strategy? Can we really support our retail customers and do all the people within the company have all the tools and resources they need in order to deliver on the brand promise? And so those are the questions we're about to start answering. And I think that is really exciting. So do I feel like we're underinvested? No. Um, but should we be investing more? Yeah, but that's where we're at. And I think that it's just a you know, run, walk, uh, or crawl, walk, run you know, methodology instead of buying into it and saying, all right, we're going to buy the big thing. And, you know, like the field of dreams, they'll come. It's not right. going to work like that. Uh, Caroline, you said at the top that you're looking to, you know, put some more effort into the direct consumer strategy. What does that look like? Is that a 2020 plan or? It's definitely a 2020 plan. Um, I would say the first thing we need to do is really get a good inventory system in place. We have... We're shipping through direct-to-consumer, we're shipping wholesale, we're shipping dropship, we're shipping to trunk shows. And with all of those different things, just having like a really great inventory system in place is really important. Um, and then once that is in place and we feel good about it, then really focusing on direct-to-consumer. Um, you know, we're kicking that off this month actually with some mommy bloggers who, a lot of mommy bloggers who um, are getting a lot of like great content for us um, with their kids in the product and really showing. Um, you talked a little bit um, about video content. Like we need a lot of video content. I feel like actually showing the kids wearing the dresses, playing in them, washing them. Um, and so that's somewhere where there's huge opportunity for us that we haven't invested enough in yet um, and are, are definitely going to in 2020. And if we were, you know, to talk about some timely subjects and uh and then we'll, we'll sort of wrap it up because i'd love to hear you guys outlook of what the next few years looks like um but in, in from a timely subject perspective you know a lot of you have very digitally um, I, I don't know if i call you all digitally native but you have a growth channel for digital um and smiling button is going to be investing in that do, do you, just as an aside do you think that the you can continue to like run a profitable business and be successful without you know, by having a, a predominantly digital business, uh, or is it going to require, you know, scaling out to physical retail to, you know, to keep the growth channel, to keep the growth coming into all the different channels? I'm curious what you think, Mark. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny if you took that exact question and you replaced every time you said digital with physical, and this was a different <laughs> podcast, uh, it would still make sense, right? Like, there's a podcast across town, I'm sure, right now, where they're talking about a bunch of, you know, yeah. Can Older, you do physical only? Yeah, right? can you do physical only? Do you do, do you really need to extend to digital, right? That like uh, there's this premise that 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 some channels are are getting oversaturated in, in, in one perspective it's the retail apocalypse, and the other it's the digital saturation. Um, and the reality is I think I think neither of those is necessarily as extreme as we'd like to or we, we might we might hear. Um, and what we found is that there's just a a, a a a quick loss of revenue and traction for brands who are Operating in a fairly transactional way, so it's probably like a kind of a transactional apocalypse if we can rename it, hmm. um, and and a huge lift for everybody else that's running really thoughtful, kind of relationship-focused brands who really like this kind of 
interpersonal interaction. They like to watch, you know, the person using the garment understand why it works, why it doesn't make those changes immediately, you know, have stores or, or go to the boutiques where they sell this stuff and watch how the kids interact, put it at eye level. I love that. Um, but I think we see just a massive growth in brands who are taking authentic, real approaches to making better product for people that actually need it and a loss of, of, of the rest. And that's really regardless of channel. I brought up the channel example at the beginning because it doesn't. it's channel agnostic. It's really just about the, the growth and emergence of thoughtful brands and, and, and the loss of the rest. Is there something that money can't solve? Like, what what would you have to what what would you go do that just doesn't require money? I, someone had said something backstage about having a shirt on billions or something like that. I forget what it was. Um, it's Traxman. Oh, it's Traxman. Um, that's yeah. If you look at the Facebook comments, they'll tell you that your shirts do cost billions. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's true. Well, I can uh, hear the trolls already. I know. I know. It'll yeah. be good. Um, you know, are there are there interesting strategies that are that lie outside of you know to like get in front of bigger audiences that don't require just spending money? I mean, um, yeah. Um, I'll go back a little bit to your last statement <clears throat> on physical and digital, where I do feel like that's one of those kind of like blanket statements that someone may take mm. as that's applicable when in fact it may not be. So I think there are absolutely brands that could be digital only. I think there are brands that could be physical only um, and be very successful. Um, but I think the case for all of us up here is we have an omni-channel approach. Um, when we started Tracksmith, we definitely, we obviously started digitally, but the intent was always to be omni-channel. We didn't even talk about it in those, in those we didn't use those words. We just said we're a running brand and every running brand has grown through being on the ground, grassroots with the community, getting product on people. And so... Um, Digital was just sort of the first step of that plan. Um, so, but I think, yeah, I think you can do things, um, you know, do they, for, for free or not a lot of money, I think PR obviously can be really successful if you have something compelling. I think the thing that money can't solve is authenticity. Um, I don't think you can manufacture that. Um, maybe that's not, maybe you can, maybe enough money you can, um, you can do that. Um, but I think that, that those are the, that specifically is something that I think is a short-term horizon. I think you could probably manufacture that for a five to eight-year period of time and grow a brand, but that's not a 50-year brand, right? You can't, you can't, I don't think, buy that with money. So, um, so yeah, I don't know if that kind of answers it, but. Yeah. I, do, you, do you, what do you think? That- I, I, would, I would agree with that. Um, I think, you know, I've mentioned authenticity a couple of times. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that, um, makes the Seabags brand resonate is the fact that people know that it's an authentic brand. If you walk into one of our retail stores, uh, the decoration in the store has not been purchased. The decorations are buoys that we found on beaches. Um, my kids get paid in gum to bring <laughs> buoys so that we can have them to decorate. Uh, you know, we have sails stuffed up like sail loft style. Um, a lot of the furniture we have is reclaimed. Um, because again, we're trying to live sustainability in everything that we do. So, you know, in terms of is it a, a, a retail brand or is it a, a digital brand? You know, I think our original intent was that the bigger channel was going to be e-commerce, and surprised by the fact that retail has been very important to us, and it's because of the retail strategy that we laid out, which is that 
it's experiential. When you come to a retail store, the, the, what we want people to see and feel is the texture of the bag um, and dream about the, the story that you're going to carry on your shoulder and the thought that this sail may have been sailing in Bermuda, it may have been sailing in the Virgin Islands, it may have been sailing in Maine. And there's no way to really know, but they can imagine it and then they can you know, see some more of the experience of being a main brand and, you know, some of the fixturing that is authentic and real. And we then can take that experience, the customers bought into it at retail, and then they're willing to have that same experience online, and they see all those same scents and the trail of hints that we've left on the website for them to see, like, oh, yeah, it is. It's all the same brand. Mm -hmm. So I think it's... Is as marketers, our job is to make sure that we are carrying that through and really telling our brand story um, and the customer story and involving them in that story as much as we can. And I think about the user-generated content aspect of it. We have a, a hashtag, Seabag Sighting, that we use, and we ask customers to participate in. And we do that in our retail environment. We do it online. And we actually use customers' content in our marketing. Uh, regularly, either quotes from reviews, we use them as headlines, we you know, pepper our website with it, but the whole point is that customers really feel like they're participating in the brand and that we're elevating what they're talking about. Some of the best things that we do come from customers. Mm. I think you're really touching upon something important there, which is really including your customers in your brand story. I think that's part of the authenticity of, of any of our brands, is really making the customers feel like the story's not just ours, it's theirs to own now, too. And whatever memories they make with that bag, running that race, maybe at work, um, but you know, on vacation with their family, that they're really feeling like this brand is theirs, too, that they own a part of you know, what your story is. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think about how Digiday is going to frame this is sea bags uses child labor to help. <laughs> <laughs> they were supervised <laughs> and paid well. Uh, yeah. Gum, Adults really stood idly by, did nothing. <laughs> um, this is this has been awesome. I, I I'm trying to think about you know how how could think about where you all were you know seven or eight years ago um, you know before you were doing what you're doing now. Um, you know, it, it's kind of this is a played out thing, but like, what would you, you know, what would you tell yourself now? Because I, I think it's really interesting that to have an audience of uh, aspiring founders or aspiring, you know, merchants or people who work in a brand right now who have dreams of their own, who are looking to launch something, they sense that the economy might be a little frothy, um, and maybe something's going to come. Who knows? Uh, they want to take a leap, and they're 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 ready to take the jump, but you know maybe you were all right were there in some way or another operationally in the last few years. Um, what would you talk? What would you tell them? Uh, I'm on. Well, let's just go this way. Oof, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think I think so much of what you know, and if we think about kind of 2013, 14, 15, the early years of our brand. We got caught up, as, as everybody did at that period, in, in the Bonobos kind of wave, right? And I think it was a good example of saying, like, what are they doing? We should give that a shot. Um, and it was just interesting because I think we, we were taking our eye off, and as most were, of the ball of what starting a company should be all about, which is making something that you're really, really proud of, right? Um, 
And I think it was interesting for us kind of going through that narrative in, in those kind of couple of early years where we were, you know, engineers by background. At first, our only excitement was product. It shifted for a brief moment right after we started it to, you know, these great headlines we were getting and raising kind of capital from VCs was just this kind of exciting thing that you'd end up in TechCrunch. And on and, and our most recent round, we didn't even announce it. And it was kind of the special moment of saying, our pride and joy of the last seven or eight years has been entirely uh, when a prototype arrives, right? That all of a sudden something comes in and you know it's from one of your factories and you know it's a third round sample, so it's going to be good. And you just get so amped up and the whole office will rally around that we'll all open it together and be like, this is it. We're, you know, we've been waiting for this new product for months or in some cases years. And, uh, and I think to kind of stay disciplined to that being what genuinely drives, I think, all of us is just making something that is truly better than anything that exists and knowing that you had some small part in that, um, that staying disciplined to that and excited about that and not getting tempted by kind of this weird phase that we're going to look back on with, like, what was going on then, mm. um, that, that kind of the, the 2010s, I think, marked this, this frothy economic period of, of kind of capitals available and Things are growing at weird, disproportional rates, um, but that ultimately if we stay disciplined, we should stay disciplined to making a product that we're incredibly proud of and, and giving it to a customer who, who is truly impacted in a positive way by it. I would probably share that advice and saying that that's the only thing that should matter and, and will continue to matter for the next decade. And how, how far out, like when you started, how far out of a plan did you have in place and would you recommend to somebody to, to be looking and saying, all right, make sure you have a plan that looks at least five years forward. Yeah, and we're right on plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no mistakes. In there. Yeah, this is exactly right. Um, now we have, we've made one or two mistakes, maybe, Max. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 think that, I think we probably overthought all of this stuff, yeah. right? I, again, I think we overthought everything. We overthought, like, funding strategy. And, you know, people would tell us when we started, like, you've you got to decide now. Is it IPO, exit, or hold it? And I'm like, no, you don't have to decide that now. Don't ever decide that, right? Just make a really great product and it'll work itself out. Um, and I think this kind of premise of these, like, playbooks that we're, you know, evolving on, like, you know, uh, entrepreneurship in an age of, of frothy VC money, right, were very different from just, like, the, the, the you know, Ogilvy books on just make a really great product that co- consumers are genuinely excited by. So I think um, the plan looks nothing like it did then, and the plan is probably a lot, uh, uh, one that we're a lot prouder of now than we might have been looking back on that. What, what, would, what would you give it an advice to an aspiring entrepreneur? So when I started Smiling Button, it was almost five years ago, and I started right out of college. So I had no experience in apparel, no experience in manufacturing, um, and just saw a need in the market for this product. And I think the most important thing is to focus on your passion for what you're creating and making sure that you feel as... You said, like, just feeling really good about the product itself um, and being willing to go for it. Like, it's never going to be perfect right away. And just, like, putting yourself out there, talking to everyone you can talk to, having any conversation you can because you never know where it could lead, and just feeling like it's okay to just go for it. Um, I learned a lot as I went. I'm still learning a lot, Um, you know, my original business plan was entirely direct to consumer and we're 96% wholesale. So it just, it, it evolves in whatever way it needs to for the brand to survive um, as long as you're staying true to it. So I would say, you know, just follow your passion and create something that you're proud of. Laura, your role, uh, you came from LLB. I did, yeah. Right? And 
you know, that seems like it, it's an established brand. Yep. Um, <laughs> not that Sea Bags isn't, uh, but it's, it's a wee bit bigger. Right. <laughs> uh, was it, was it a leap of faith to go over to Sea Bags, and, and what you know, what was that transition like? And maybe if you could speak to you know somebody who's looking to make a, a big career shift to move over to digital from you know a larger, more corporate yeah. Setting. I well, you know, it it was a leap of faith in that um, you know it was a, a newer brand at the time um, that it had been around for a long time, but I didn't know much about it. And uh, having come from, again, bigger, much more well-funded companies, I was wondering, like, so what, what exactly will I have to work with? Because you didn't really know going into the opportunity. But, um, but I could see the vision. And I think the, the key thing that attracted me to it was uh, the leadership and how clear the leadership was on what the mission of the business was. And I talked about it at the beginning, was the, the three pillars that we're based on. And those pillars guide absolutely every bit of decision-making that we make. There hasn't been a day where we've decided on a product or an idea or a partner to work with where we didn't go back and say, it doesn't fit. And knowing that I was coming into an opportunity where we were so well-defined, and I knew that I was going to have basically, they're not marching orders, but they're certainly you know, foundational guidelines. It makes it so much easier to get strategic and make decisions when you have a tighter you know, sandbox to work within, and then you start building up taller. Boundaries. Really, really good boundaries. Right within the boundaries. And then, the, and then as the company started to grow bigger and the department's growing, and uh, it's, again, easier to delegate and it's easier to get other people all on the same page and you know that you're all singing from the same song sheet. And I think that is really important and it's been one of the keys of, again, remaining authentic to our customer base and knowing that we are delivering to them what we said we were going to get them, which is a made in the USA product <coughs> from 100% recycled material and we're going to make sure that as part of what we're doing, we're giving back to our community. And so. Um, that was the big opportunity for me, and I can't say that I had that experience in my previous roles. And so I'd say if I were going to give advice to somebody, it would be to make sure that, you know, beyond just the product, which is obviously like tantamount to what you're doing, um, being really clear about what the pillars of the business are. Um, for us, it's three, and, you know... Schoolhouse Rock says three is the magic number. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, maybe uh, making sure that your, your mission is, has enough variety in it that's going to support this product or product idea or service that you have. Final word, Matt. No pressure. God hates a coward. <laughs> We're still waiting on the, uh, that's the, the Casper hot take, right? Yeah. What's that? The Casper hot take, I think that was what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, uh, that was going to be my advice. Um, we, uh, uh, I think it's one of, again, I, I, don't, I don't like giving sort of advice because, again, I think everyone's situation is totally different and unique, and I don't think starting businesses is, is for everyone, and I don't think... Um, even if it is, that the timing is also a really big factor on when in your life it makes sense to take that risk. I think once you're committed to it, though, that's when you, you have to go all in, right? If you're going to do it, you, you have to do it. Um, but I think, yeah, I think things that get so overlooked in these conversations are timing and luck. Um, 
we like to give credit to things that are more tangible and easy to wrap our heads around. But, um, you know, I think your, your point about talking to as many people as you can and getting as much input and advice, but then really being able to filter that into something that you can apply to what you want to do um, is really, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's not easy uh, starting a business. I think maybe a little different being a founder than coming in later in, later on. Being a founder is weird and hard and thrilling and challenging and comes with a lot of different things that are super unique that I think as a first-time founder, you never think about going into it. Um, and, and as you go, I think second-time founder, that you, you expect all that stuff and it's probably a lot easier. So, um, But yeah, once you make that decision that's something you want to pursue, you just, you just go do it. Figure it out. I think there's one more important thing to touch upon, and it's that you have a really loyal team. Because I think when you start a business, you don't have necessarily the capital to have the brightest or the most experienced in the industry. But it's really important to surround yourself with a team of people that you trust, that are loyal, and that stand beside you and behind the brand as much as you do as the founder. Uh, I mean, I can't think of a better way to end. Thank you so much. This has been phenomenal. Uh, and thank you all for listening. And uh, I would like to turn it over to the audience for questions. Uh, we have five minutes <coughs> for questions. Not a single question. OK, Liz. Um, what would you say is the, has been the pinnacle piece of customer data that you've used to direct your marketing strategies? And then what's, what, what's one piece of data that you wish that you knew about your customers? Can I bring you with? every show that we do. Uh, hard bounce rate, I think. Um, I'm just kidding. That was a clavier. Yeah, that, was that, was a, that was an email provider related yeah, yeah. humor. Just throwing that, that in there. Zero, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Zero. <laughs> Always zero. We started a metric about a year ago that we really love that I, I enjoy sharing with everybody because everybody should, should, should consider it. We call it the inspiration quotient of a product and it's, we call it the IQ for short. Um, and it's the likelihood that someone buys again after their first purchase. And it's an easy way for us to understand whether or not the product is resonating. It's not necessarily a good or bad product. Are we serving to the right person at the right place at the right time? It's a mix of, of variables, not just good or bad. Um, it's a reflection of marketing strategies. It's like NPS in a way, except it, it's a bit more supply driven. Um, and it helps to educate our marketing strategy. It helps to get, get all, all of our decisions. right. If we know a product has a really strong IQ, um, we'll tend to really invest in it and continue to build it out and, and kind of engineer uh, an excitement in our customers that we know they're expressing to us via Purchase behavior, how can we translate that into the brain and continue to double down on it? Another question. Great. When you do those big runs with 200 people, yep. uh, how many of those people are showing up wearing your gear? Some aspect of oh, your gear. Oh, now a lot more than in the beginning. Um, I don't know what the percentage is. Um, we did do a little bit of a, last year at the Boston Marathon, um, we sort of went through photos and determine the percentage of people that were wearing, in, in the top half of the race, percentage of people that were wearing um, some Tracksmith piece of clothing, clothing, and it was just under 4%, which was um, relative to our market size, obviously amazing. Um, and at the Olympic trials, we, um, this is the, the women's race, so there's about 500, a little over 500 women um, who have qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon, and we're supporting over 100 of those athletes. Um, which is really amazing and something we're, we're really proud of. So, But yeah, it took uh, probably the same for you guys. It takes like, 
I remember when we started, it took me a long time to see, we, we say tracksmith in the wild, right? Like someone that wasn't an employee or like a mom or a dad wearing tracksmith. But now you go run on the river in Boston at lunchtime and it's weird if I don't see someone running a tracksmith. So um, that's really... We take We've a lot all of pride probably in that. taken those secret, secret pictures of somebody like on the tee. I've done yeah. that once. It's really yeah. creepy when it's children. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Early on, it's, is this someone's mom? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, no, no one's mom. It was wild. <laughs> um, wait, can I ask a question? Yeah. I would be curious to know. I'm excited to now use this moment to be inspired to go buy something from uh, Tracksmith Sea Bags and Smiling Button. What is the one piece that I absolutely cannot live without? Let me figure out what our most expensive piece is. Critical <laughs> <laughs> margin. margin, margin. High margin, yeah, exactly. Well, we don't do IKEA. We, we don't look at it exactly the same way, but it's a similar metric. And our, we have a pair of shorts for men and women called the Session Shorts, and yep. it's our number one selling product. Um, so that's, yeah, if there's one pair of shorts you're going to go run in, it's probably that pair. Seven inch. Seven inch or five inch, yeah. Yeah. Your your preferred yeah. preferred yeah. inseam length. I bought the five inch and my wife told me about them later. She's like, she found seven. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we get most of our repeat business. Yeah. Live and learn. We push the five inch and then come back for the seven. Um I would say, even though you don't have a daughter. I would say our smiling button girl tunie. It's like a classic tunic style with a girl on the front holding an ice cream cone and there's a yo-yo coming out her pocket and balloons in her other hand and she just embodies <laughs> what we're about as a brand and just like the playfulness T-tunic? and fun. The tunie. It's like tunie. a tunic but cuter. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to give you two, one for your wife. Code. And one for you. So uh, our ultimate beach bag, which... Right up my alley. I mean... That, Wait, is that one for me or for No, me? that was for your wife. Okay. But if you would like it, yeah. we carry it in lots of colors. Um, it come, <laughs> has all these great pockets. It has an outside pocket for wet gear. It's perfect for the beach. People love it. Love it. Top, top class. So that's a great one. And then for the guys, um, our beverage bucket, which is a uh, interior pockets with six, can hold six beers. It has an interior cavity for ice and a grommet hole in the bottom. So you can take your little cooler bag of ice and cold <coughs> beer on the go, and it drains, it drains out right the out. bottom. Pair well together, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah day at the beach with, with your honey. So there you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you all for coming out, and uh, thank you to our panel. Can we give our panel a round of applause? <laughs> And thanks for listening to Merchant to Merchant.